Hey friends, my name's Stevie Taylor. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Dave Goodman. Dave is a drummer and educator from Sydney. Uh, We caught up at his studio on Halloween night, um, which was a little bit spooky and some strange things sort of went on, Um, but that's all good. Uh, Dave recently um, changed his technique, his drumming technique, due to some pain he was getting in his hand. Um, It was fascinating to hear how he went about about that. Um, Of course, we talked about his career and uh, just music in general and, and yeah philosophies and um yeah extremely intelligent man um i hope you enjoyed it oh, i did ladies and gentlemen dave goodman cheers i think we're rolling <laughs> dave goodman <laughs> Hi. how are you man yeah i'm well happy halloween thanks yeah yeah, yeah. you know it's funny man because you like you, you knocked on my door and i thought it was one of those Kids trick or treating now. Yeah. Get off my damn No, I wanted people to ask for a trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks, Steve. So, so thanks. We, were, we were talking just just before we started rolling um, the significance of Halloween. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, yep. uh, it's it's my my sister's twentieth wedding anniversary today. Yep. And um, and that brings with it this whole other backstory, which I've been thinking about. Like, of course, thinking about her and her family. Um, but but also it came at a really interesting time in my you want if you want to call it a career. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there were there were a couple of days. Let's see. It was a Saturday. So twenty years ago, I believe the thirty first was a Saturday, and she got married in Tamworth, which is where I was born and grew up. Mm-hmm. And I had a flight booked to go up there. I guess probably on the Friday. I must have gone up Friday, you know, Saturday morning wedding, and then uh, I think come back Sunday morning. <laughs> well, on the Thursday before that, 29th, I got a, call, a phone call, and I was at home with my flatmates, uh, who at the time were the great pianist Matt McMahon and lovely bassist Mervyn Sequeira. We, we were like a house trio for many, many years living in um, Hill Street, Leichhardt, in this place that was falling down. And the phone rang Thursday morning, and I was still a student at the con. It was like my, maybe my second last week of, of classes after four years, and I was going to graduate later that year. And um, I had a big band rehearsal to get to that afternoon. Anyway, the phone rang. And it was Bernie McGann, the great alto saxophone player, uh, sort of Australian jazz icon. He's never made a phone call to my house before. Oh, Dave, it's Bernie. I hope that's a good enough <laughs> version. It's yeah. been a while since I've heard his voice. Yeah. Um, it's Bernie. Um, what are you doing in the next three weeks? I said, oh, well, Bernie, I've got my, my final recital at the con, you know. Um, oh, that's too bad, mate. Uh, I was going to... There's a tour I want you to do. Poche is sick, and uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, four years. I'm, I'm an idiot for a start, <laughs> like for thinking this way. But you know, um, 
yeah, I can't do this tour. I didn't know what the tour was. Anyway, so I hung up the phone and Matt was sitting there listening and he said, was that, that was Bernie? And I said, yeah. And he said, what, what did he want? And I said, oh, he, he wanted, he had a, there's like a tour for three weeks over the next three weeks, but I, I got my recital at the corner. He said, man, call him back and tell him to do that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> gig, you know, reschedule the recital. And I'm like, oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Oh, what a fool. So I called him straight away and I said, hey, Bernie, it's Dave. Listen, um, look, I'll call the con. I'll work that out, you know, and I, I instantly formed a thought in my head, you know, even if I have to, like, absent fail that exam or whatever and, and, and even not get my degree, I'd be willing to put that on the line for whatever Bernie McGann has to offer, right? So, so he, said, um, he said, oh, okay, well, have you got a passport? And I hadn't been out of the country yet, so I said, uh, no. And he said, oh, well, you can't come then, mate. And I said, well, what is it? <laughs> and he said, well, 10-part invention, we're touring Southeast Asia for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Something like, I think it was 21 concerts in 21 days. It was nuts. And, and I said, ah, oh, geez, you know, and I hung up the phone again, and Matt said, was that about a passport? Like, he's eavesdropping on the <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and... Uh, is that about a passport? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh man, you can get that rushed through. You don't want to worry about it. You know, and I'm like, oh wow, I didn't even know. Okay. So I called Bernie back and said, hey man, look, just give me a few hours. Leave it with me. Um, <laughs> I'll do my best. So he said, okay, mate, but uh, you know, we've got to get it cracking because the flights are on Tuesday, hey. you know, and the first gig's on Sunday at the Opera House, you know, oh God. And I'm like, ah, oh, but my sister's wedding's on Saturday in Tamworth, you know, and, I, and I'm like, I think, anyway, so I got on the phone and, I, you know, this is back in the days before anyone was using the internet for this kind of stuff. Yep. So fortunately, living in Sydney, uh, it was all this bureaucratic nonsense of having to get a letter faxed. Faxed, uh, yeah. <laughs> From yep. Melbourne, from the promoter, um, and uh, to confirm that I was actually working and that I needed uh, a, not only visas for China, but a passport, um, and had to take cash and go to the chemist and get passport photos and go right into Pitt Street and hand this all over at the desk. And, um, and then they, they like courier the, the passport to you according to when you have to depart, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, people can get them apparently a lot quicker, Yeah. but I went in there on Friday and I did it and mine arrived on Monday afternoon for a Tuesday morning flight. Oh, wow. So meantime, uh, I got all of that, scrambled for all of that, went into the con in the afternoon and the guy running the big band, Dick Monts, was, you know, the, the head of the course at the time. And I said, oh, Dick, look, this tour has come up. And I, again, I had made up my mind. I didn't really care what he was going to say. Um, uh, I'm going to have to postpone my recital. And he said, he said, no. Oh, well, I guess I'm just going to have to fail my course, you know. Like, I mean, you can't turn down a three-week tour with a 10-part invention. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, long story, uh, to cut a long story short, I hate it when people cut that phrase short, long story short. It should be, to cut a long story short, <laughs> yeah. don't cut the phrase short. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway. Kind of doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up having to go to the dean, you know, and I, and I said, look, this tour has come up and I have to postpone my recital. I think she was filing her nails and she looked up at me and she said, well, that'll be a wonderful start to your career, won't it? <laughs> so I got her blessing and she let me change the recital. And, yeah. Yeah, so... So then I got on the plane and I flew to Tamworth for my sister's wedding, got really drunk that night and then flew back to Sydney and sight-read the 10-part invention gig at the Opera House, wow. um, which was nuts because all these crazy pieces by Roger Frampton and, and um, 
anyway, and then and then I had a day to kind of get the passport sorted and and just get some luggage and stuff and and just I mean I I had no idea what I was in for, man. Like, mm. um, then Tuesday morning we got to the airport, jumped on the plane, off we went, and and um, first gig was in Taiwan. We we sort of went the length of Taiwan and played. There were all national concert halls, two or three thousand seat mm. venues. I had never played in rooms like this what before. Sound fantastic. Oh, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Like I said, the drums were pretty crappy. Oh yeah. No, I did. I just travelled with a snare and a, yeah. and a like a pack and roll case with pedals and stuff yeah. Yeah. and cymbals, but um, the rest of it was provided. And um, <laughs> but there were a few things that. Happened on that trip, which were fascinating for me. I mean, just like you know, life, yeah, life curve. Um, yep. first tour, right? First, I had tour ever. Well, I had flown to Brisbane with Sandy Evans prior okay. to that. Um, yep. that was the first time I caught a plane, I was, yeah, to but my first trip overseas, absolutely. Yep. Yep. And I mean, yeah, I had like <laughs> shows you how, how ignorant I am yeah. of, of worldly things. I, I, I did, it didn't occur to me that I was going to cross the equator and go into the northern hemisphere and, and then in Beijing it was going to be snowing at this time. I, oh, I right. packed all summer clothes. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and how long ago was this? This, 20, this is 20, 20 years 20 ago. Years ago yeah. yeah, so I was 21. Yeah. And absolutely green, very wet behind the ears. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I didn't even, I, you wouldn't, I wouldn't have even known if my ass was on fire. I mean, I, I still don't know, but I mean, I really didn't <laughs> know then, you know. Yeah. Well, I just asked my wife. Anyway, so... I mean, it was just unbelievable. I, 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 we were, it was like rock star service, right? These, the flights were amazing and all the ground transport and everything was just, it was all just seamless. And anyway, we started playing all these concerts and by about the third or fourth night, I'd kind of memorized the book so I, I could just sort of finally play with these guys. Um, and, and then I heard that when we get to China, we're playing for the Beijing International Jazz Festival, and um, which actually operated in several different cities concurrently. And uh, the, the the first gig was going to be in Shanghai, where we were going to open for the Dave Holland Quartet from mm. America. And, and I'm like, oh my God, well, Dave Holland was my biggest hero at the time. Mm. And um, I, it was surreal to me. And then in, in Beijing, we were supposed to open for Paul Motion's electric bebop band, and I, I couldn't believe it. These names. So the you know China's getting closer and closer. We spent a week in the Philippines, and 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 um, and and then you know, and it was really funny. Like we got to the 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 venue in in Shanghai, and it it was very much like the old concert hall, the old Verbruggen Hall, in um, in what was the con before it got renovated. I used to refer to it as the hallowed halls. Right. Now it's the hallowed hole. Yeah. <laughs> it's all underground now. I mean, and, and, um, yeah, the Bruggen Hall was totally different. And Craig Scott, the chair of the department, used to joke that Verbruggen was German for shit sound. And <laughs> <laughs> was it? Oh, yeah. well, it was somebody's name, but I mean, it uh -huh. certainly didn't sound, yeah. um, very, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like a jazz, Right. type theatre to play in. It was very, very much set up for, I don't know, opera or, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. chamber groups and stuff. So very, very reverberant. Anyway, the, so the concert hall we played at in Shanghai was just like the Verbruggen Hall at the Con at the time. And I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. And we used to have these classes at the Con 
called concert practice where two bands would play for the rest of the jazz cohort and and then everyone would critique everyone else's playing mm. so you know the usual setup the second band sound checks first first band sound checks second then they play and then the second band plays well it was just like walking into the Verbruggen Hall and doing concert practice but with 10 part invention the other band was the Dave Holland Quartet oh, shit. and the drummer was Billy Kilson and I had a few of their albums and I was really and I just Wow, this sitting by the side of the stage and watching him play, and I played, I played this. We played the same drums, so I left the tuning and everything to his specs and just put my cymbals up because I didn't want to mess with that. And mm-hmm. It was like it was surprising how high he tuned, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, but he got this real like warm depth. Get the body out of the yeah, body. body. And I, I, I hit them, and they sounded like little tin cans, you know. So I, I, I was like, wow, there's something I don't know about touch here, mm. and. Uh, yeah, so I got to meet Dave Holland, and we're, we're, we're on the same bus going back to the same hotel. <laughs> there was this one time where James Greening, the trombonist, and I were sort of sitting there together, and, and Dave was sitting in the front of the bus with his wife, Claire, and his big double bass in the, in the massive sort of flight case that they come in was sort of straddling like 10, 10 rows of seats on the bus. And uh, he just got up and just left it on the bus. And Greening and I are looking at each other like, wow, I guess someone's got to get it off. So we, we took his face off the bus. Oblivious, was he? I don't know. If he yeah. just, maybe he was. I, yeah, right? yeah. We just thought that he maybe expected that someone would... Oh, right, okay. I, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, someone had to get it off. He, he certainly didn't lift it off. Yeah. So we took it into the lobby. Anyway, um, but there's this other aspect to, to, to meeting him that was really amazing what happened was the next day after that concert which was just like playing at an international jazz festival with 10 part invention and looking into the wings and there's Dave Holland standing there watching you it was like otherworldly for me right and 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 I knew that we were going to be going to Beijing and meeting Paul Motion the next day so you know we got to the airport nice and early it was quite warm in Shanghai and we took off probably two or three hour flight and about halfway into the flight there was an announcement and we had to turn back to Shanghai because there was this massive downpour of snow in Beijing they had to close the airport mm. so we're like ah oh, damn well at least it's an early morning flight they'll, they'll clear the runway and we can get a later flight in and make the gig we sat on the tarmac in the plane like almost like held hostage mm. for like six or seven hours and there were these like Italian guys on there who were getting really red under the collar and you know people you know the toilets started over running and getting smelly and it was really oh. strange you know and did you have your sticks in your bag I, pro- I probably did in those days 1998 yeah i used to travel with the sticks in the mm. overhead compartment i mm. can't do it anymore because they, they always tell me oh like, can you use that as a weapon i say well i won't oh, really but they said well someone can so you have to check them in oh, like, fuck, you know? so um yeah i mean i didn't we just chatted I guess yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We, we tried to stay relaxed and like whatever well um, and then they ushered us back into the terminal we weren't going to get to Beijing anytime soon you know so I was wandering around the terminal with Sandy Evans and and we bumped into Dave and Claire Holland they were walking back the other way and, and Sandy and Dave had met in Shanghai at the gig and, and had exchanged words so it turns out Sandy met her husband Sandy's the tennis saxophone player in Tempo Dimension by the way mm-hmm. 
um, and 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 another oh, every one in that band is a legend in Australian jazz, and um, yeah, and and Dave sort of opened up his jacket pocket and and produced his a copy of his latest CD for her, and he and he said, I want you, I wanted you to have this, Sandy, and uh, she said, thank you very much, and we we parted ways, and and she opened it up, and he'd written a little inscription in there, and it said, dear Sandy and Tony, Tony is. Sandy's husband, Tony Gorman, a great, great uh, woodwind player. He said, love and music brought to you together. Let's hope it stays that way. With love from Dave and Claire Holland. So I said, what's that about? She said, well, Tony and I met in the audience at a Dave Holland gig oh. in Europe, like many, many years before. And um, as it turns out, um, Sandy's husband, Tony, probably bit more than maybe 20, 25 years ago, developed multiple sclerosis, mm. unfortunately, and it really knocked him out of action. He was a very busy musician playing around town before that. He's still around and he's still got a great sense of humor. And Well, Sandy relayed that story to Dave and it turns out his mother had MS as well. So there was this kinship there mm. and, this, and this lovely exchange. You know, the generosity of someone like that was so cool. I thought, wow, not only is Dave Holland like a thoroughly awesome musician, mm but he's a really deep, loving person as well, you know. Um, and to, to cut the story even shorter... <laughs> um, you know you did it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, long story That's, short. Yeah. I won't, you won't ever hear me say that. Yeah. Um, uh, we missed the gig in Beijing. Yeah. We, we couldn't make it in time, so I never got to play before Paul Motion. But just the thought that that could have happened was... Just again, surreal to me. So surreal that it was unreal. It didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean, the, the experience of playing, I mean, just getting the passport and all that bureaucracy, getting mm. organized mm. To, to get out of the country and, um, and then to go and play and to earn good money too. Like, we were really, really, you know, per diems and all this. I mm. wasn't used to any of that. Yep. And uh, packed a bunch of money in the bank and came home. And, and then I was like, wow, well, what's next? Yeah. Um, because I, I did, and then I did my recital a couple of weeks later, and then the con was finished, and I was mm. like, okay, <laughs> what do we do now? But that was like a, you know, I, I remember I had a distinct feeling after that trip. I, I don't know why I thought this, uh, it ended up being true, but I thought, I'm, I'm not going to have this kind of experience again for a very long time. And I, I certainly won't have the uniqueness of that experience ever yeah, again. Of Just uh, magical playing with those guys. I mean, several of them have gone and died now. Um, and I became a permanent member in 2011. Um, my wife and I were honeymooning in Los Angeles and got a phone call in the car. We'd just, just gone out to see the Donny McCaslin group with Mike yeah. Giuliano playing. Yeah, I was going to say. We're on our way back to the room in Santa Monica. Who and, was um, playing bass? Um, it was uh, a guy who I had seen in New York previously. His name's Fema Efron, playing okay. electric bass. Lovely yeah. player. He, he, used to, he was playing with Wayne Krantz a bit when I saw right. him. Uh, I hadn't heard of him outside of New York, um, but I met him, and, and he was a cool guy. And yeah, so he just sort of seems to be the guy that, I don't know if Tim Lefebvre isn't available. I was going to say Tim Lefebvre, yeah. 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 Um, then they'll get Fima Efron. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, hell of a player. Yeah. Uh, so this the phone rang, we're sort of crossing the hills in... Um, in Los Angeles and the phone rang and it was Sandy Evans and it was a 10-part invention annual general meeting. It's, a, it's an incorporated trust, you know, and they had oh, to right. have an AGM every year and they right. 
decided to keep going and John Pochet actually officially retired from playing the drums right. that year, which meant he, you know, um, had to give away the drum chair, but they wanted to keep the band going, so they invited me to be a permanent member. Um, I'd been filling in for him ever since that tour, yep. whenever he was ill, um, which was always just a magical experience for me. Um, yeah, so we're going to Wangaratta on, um, on Friday, so it's Wednesday now, so on Friday I'm going to take my girls down to Wangaratta and we're playing for the Wangaratta Jazz Festival. Yeah. You're judging. And I'm judging yeah, the yeah. National Jazz Awards as well. Awesome. Yeah. So and who's on the panel with you? Um, so it'll be me and Hamish Stewart yep. and David Jones. Heavy. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Good to hang out with those guys for a couple of days. And I mean, I, I you know, I mean, I've been in that contest. I came, uh, I was 20 in 1997 and I came second in it. And I, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I just, I made this entry tape went into a studio and I thought well I don't expect to get into the finals for the National Jazz Awards I had seen them on TV previous years with other instruments saxophone and piano and just you know watching those awards I think, wow well that's that's where it's at mm. and when it you know I was at the con <coughs> my third year at the con and, and it came up that you know they were going to make it available for drums in 1997 I'm like wow well Screw it! I'll, I'll just put a tape in anyway, and even and I, I'm not going to get through, but I'll have a nice demo <coughs> in case I want to get some gigs. Yep. Turns out I got into the top ten, and then I got to play in the finals and ended up coming second. Can I ask what's involved in the in the competition? Yeah, sure. What are you so, having to do? So, the the deal is it's it's been pretty much consistent since these days. A couple of tweaks, yep. actually a couple of really good tweaks um, in the in the latest version of it. Um, you have to submit, uh, in those days it was a tape of yep. three tunes, right. um, uh, if I remember correctly. One of them had to be composed by, I think either Duke Ellington or um, must have been um, Herbie Hancock. I chose the Herbie Hancock tune, One Finger Snap, that Tony Williams played on. And then he had to play a ballad. So. I, transcribe this arrangement of Jerry Allen's of Lover Man that Betty Carter sang, which I, I still love. Uh, Dave Holland's on bass, funnily enough, and Jack DeJanette on the drums. Um, and uh, and then the other one, we did this arrangement of All Blues in 5-8, which was fun. Right. Put the tape in, and I was really surprised to get a letter to say, hey, you're in the top ten. I'm like, holy cool. shit, and I saw the list of names of the other contestants. I'm like, well, there's no way in hell I'm going to get a place, but hey, I'll go down and play in Wangaratta Town Hall. Great. Um, yeah, and, and, um, yeah, so then you play in the top, the people in the top 10 play a round of heats, and then from that they select who they think are the three best, and then they, you play in the, again in the, in the grand finals, I guess, and, and that gets ranked one, two, right. or three. And the judges that year were Nico Schäuble, who, I was like, wow, I used to watch him on TV with Paul Grabowski. Um, on Channel 7 every night and um, and then the other guy was Eddie Marshall from San Francisco who um, I was in Mike Knox's band at the time and Eddie was Mike Knox's original drummer in his band The Fourth Way which has been um, written about in, in major jazz journals as being actually the first you'd call it jazz rock band mm. like predating Miles Davis going into jazz rock um, and 
you know, and like, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I remember being at the basement one night watching Joe Zawinul Syndicate play and Nathaniel Townsley on drums. And I was standing next to Mike, not, we were just in the audience together and Zawinul got on the microphone and, you know, Zawinul was Mr. Synthesizer, right? You know, from the weather report days. And he got on the microphone and said, hey, everybody, I want to say something. You know, Mike Knock is in the audience tonight, and I've got to tell you, Mike Knock was an influence on me. You know, and everyone's going, yeah, Mike. And, um, and I've seen it in print, too, that, that Knock showed Zawinul the first uh, ring modulator. Right. You know, and, and, um, and he influenced Bill Evans to start playing the Fender Rhodes as Mike Knock. And, and um, yeah, and they were the first band to really sort of put like a straight eighth kind of feel under jazz improvised context it's like about 1966 I think it was mm. and that that was it's sort of like on record as being the first so like this guy's real sort of pivotal um, Mike Knox not, left yeah. a hell of an influence I was talking he to sure has. Darren Mathiason on Saturday night right. he's a New Zealand drummer yeah plays right. for Shapeshifter and um he was he was the guy that Darren heard him and just went wow I, I need to be doing this yeah well that's what he did yep yeah, and he's not the only one. There's a great bass player in America, Michael Formanek, who based his entire career on having heard a Mike Knock uh, tune or record or concert or something, and just the spark yeah, lit. Yep, yep. And he, I think he's had that effect on... Well, they're the only ones we know about. Yeah, that's all we know about. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, gosh, what is it about that guy? You know? Um yeah, so Eddie Marshall was the other judge at the the Jazz Awards that year, and he, he so he actually the night before I played um, in the heats, I did see like the the major headlining billing act was was Mike Knock Quartet. I'll just put those down there. They've <laughs> 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 gone to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> the Mike Knock it's Quartet. It's got a, you know, sorry. <laughs> it was symbolic. Dave's got it? a Dave's opened up a, an old nostalgic <laughs> stick bag <laughs> with a whole bunch of drumsticks from. A lot of drummers that are no longer with us. Um, and it's Halloween, and the stick bag just fell over. It's just keeled over. The stick bag's no so longer. So that's some freaky shit going on there. Yeah. Yep. God bless you, Alan Turnbull. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, like Mike Knock played that night with his quartet, um, <laughs> which I was in at the time. Mm. But he had Eddie Marshall on drums, and I just oh, sat yeah. there and I just watched and kind of like, okay, what's it like? It was unbelievable. Yeah. So. Just this, I don't know, there's, there's a way that guys like that played. Another drummer from that era, Eric Gravatt, who was the original in Weather Report, there's this energy and this, this, this ballsy, just deep, deep stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike used to really get off on that. And he wanted, I think he gave all of us local young guys such a hard time yep. because we're not even you know, a fraction of a fraction of, of, of what someone like Eddie Marshall could, could bring to the table. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that that really inspired me, you know. And I just got up the next morning. I'm like, screw it. I'm just gonna play my heart out. I I, I don't have much, like I don't have many chops or anything like that. But I'm mm. just gonna play. Yeah. And and Mike actually, his band was the the supporting band. He played for all the drummers. Mm. So I sort of in a way felt at home. Um, and I just thought, well, here, you know, I'll see if I can wake up that that sleeping giant in Mike. That, that will wake up if the drummer's right, you know? Mm. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've got a recording of it. The ABC played it on um, on the radio and uh, it was high energy. <laughs> yeah. 
pretty loose, but yeah. but cool. Like the feeling was good. You know. Did you like the joint? You think? You think you succeeded? You know, I it was one of the most enjoyable times I've ever had playing. Mike and I were eyeballing each other um, at one point, and it, um, and it just felt like a like a connection, uh, like a, a oneness, a unity. So I, I actually think, yeah, that was one of the best times I had playing with him. Mm. Um, um, and he, you know, he said, oh man, you know, I thought you were going to win, you know. <laughs> but, well, whatever, doesn't matter. I've got to say, um, your impersonations are great. <laughs> um, shout out to uh, Jeff um, Carcass too, because sure. um, people that don't know, Dave, had an did an interview with Jeff. Uh, what was it about eight nine months ago? Yeah, earlier this year. Right. Yeah. Um, and all through that interview, your impersonation is fantastic. <laughs> Dom Familari nailed it. You just <laughs> nailed it. Do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dom Familari was the first drum clinic I ever saw. Oh wow! In New Zealand. Yeah. And um, we had to travel two hours or so to see him. But Goodness. oh, it's just incredible. Talking high just, energy. But just, he just captivated you. Yeah. As soon as he spoke, you just like, like, yeah. Know, he just had you in the palm of his hand. It was yeah, real magnetism. Fantastic. Real charismatic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Larger than life, isn't he? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, yep. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, Dom, I mean, yeah, yeah, well, that's right. I remember I relayed the. The instructions he gave me to, to get into the studio to have the lessons with Jim Chapin. Yeah. So really detailed, really quite elaborate, you know. Yep. And I'm, yep. uh, I'm sort of madly trying to scribble them down as he's talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He ended up actually for subsequent lessons. He he was home, um, and it was cool actually for the first lesson. Um, it was just Jim Chapin and me. Okay. And we had we had free reign of Dom's studio. Um, and so he, he went with me for about two hours the first time and he said, right, that'll be $75. You know, my Jim Chapin's maybe not as good as it could be, but uh, <laughs> he just operates in a different part I, of the larynx. I, I, than... <laughs> I don't know what he sounds like. <laughs> uh, he's funny. He's quirky. Yeah. And, and, um, he's just charged me for the one hour, you know, and, and it was just, wow. You know, and then like we... <laughs> Like being in the car with him was an experience. Like we, it was a half hour drive, and I think I, I said I told Jeff like you know how I started the conversation, but but yeah. like there was there was one point like after the lesson in the drive back to the train station where like we got to know each other quite a bit better, and so the conversation's flowing freely, and he started singing to me. He he turns out he had written all these songs about one about Buddy Rich and another one about Dom, and like. I don't remember too much of it, but like, you know, it's, this, it's like, you would imagine like an up-tempo, ding, 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 ding. And he's like, if, if you're hurting or in trouble, Dom comes hurtling on the double. And, <laughs> yeah, my friend, Fandularo, he's, uh, you know. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> While he's driving. Yeah. Then what we're like, you know, the shock absorbers in that car were like, were bouncing all over the road. And he's kind of like in and out of the lanes and, and, uh. <laughs> and at one, at one point he said, do you, do you want to get a beer? And I said, sure. I mean, I've got to get some gas anyway. So we, we, we pulled into the service station and he, and he went into the, and he got a couple of Coronas and brought them out. And I started, you know, he's drinking beer while he's driving. And But to get out of that service station, uh, he, he had to make a, he had make a right-hand turn. 
Mm. So coming out, it's dodgy, you know, you've got to cross the other lane of traffic. Yep. Well, he had to make a left. And man, I thought I was going to die. Like, <laughs> we were going to get T-boned. <laughs> I'm like, this is kind of like hurtling towards this. Oh, I'm going to die in the hands yeah. of Jim Chapin. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, singing these songs and just like a real one-off character, that yeah. guy. Yeah. But yeah, he had this song about Dom Famularo, who was a, a long-time student of his. And yeah. I think he, he was instrumental in... I think getting, um, I talked to Dom a bit. So yeah, the second lesson I had with him, Dom was home and ended up staying and having dinner um, at Dom's house and he had this German student there. There's another guy from Australia um, who I stayed in touch with for a little while. Um, and we all sat around having dinner and just laughing our asses off. And and, um, and uh, yeah, Dom, Dom really held court, you know. Now, that brings me to your technique. Now you've been a traditional player for years and years and just recently um, you've had to go to match group. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, that, that. sure. So And why you've had to do that and mm. the challenge and <laughs> Yeah, well I mean I, I you know, I, I guess I've been playing the drums for about a year when I saw a film clip of Virgil Donati. I didn't know who Virgil Donati was, but I saw it ended up being him with Southern Sons and he was playing traditional grip in a film clip. And I'm this little kid in, like, you know, well, it must have been 12, I think, mm -hmm. in Tamworth. Had my little set of drums for a year, and I thought, oh, I'm going to play like that. Right. And I remember uh, on my practice pad one night, having this distinct feeling like, oh, if I squeeze that little bit harder, I can play that little bit faster. Yeah. <laughs> Which is totally wrong. Yeah. Um, so I sort of had this self-made traditional grip ever since. Mm. And um, no one ever really pulled me up on it. Jim Peace showed me a few things that Morello showed him about getting like the fulcrum happening, and um, and a drummer in Tamworth who I spent a lot of time with, Steve Fuller, who's in Hong Kong now. I just got a photo of Andy Gander just sent me a photo where they're hanging out together in Hong Kong. Steve Fuller and Andy Gander, just two of my heroes. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, Steve showed me a couple of things to just stop the stick from slipping out of your hand. Um, yeah, but like, I really didn't have much of an idea. I mean, I, I developed some, like I could play pretty fast and play, I guess, whatever rhythmic capacities I had available to me at that time. Yep. But on this one, I remember I was on a New Year's Eve gig in Tari, probably going from 2000 to 2001 or 2001 into 2002. And um, this, like, right inside the thumb there, some nerve just went, ow, and shot this pain up my arm. I'm like, Whoa. I, I don't think I even hit a rim shot or anything. It was just like, just one stroke mm -hmm. hit the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and I got this tremendous pain. I'm like, wow, oh my goodness. I'm going to have to play matched for the rest of the gig. Mm. And I ended up playing matched, but never really practicing it or taking it seriously because I thought, well, this will, this I'll come get over good. this and I'll come back to it, you <laughs> yeah. know. So about three months of matched, and then I finally got back to the traditional thing and kept playing for the next uh, I don't know, probably 10, 12, 13, 14 years, and yeah, maybe five years ago or so, that that problem started to come back. I'm like, oh my god, you know, what's happening here? Worse or the same? Same. Yep. Just like a chronic thing, like if, if I wasn't holding it in the right position, it could be very, very sensitive, even mm -hmm. on light strokes. So 
uh, you know, I had to, I thought, God, I'm going to have to give it away again. Well, at that time, I think I ended up playing matched and again, not taking it seriously mm. for about three years up until a bit over a year ago when I thought, no, right, I'm, I'm going to get this right. Mm -hmm. And, and I did the thing that I tell all my students not to do and it was just to look at some, um, some video on, on YouTube. I just went on a, you know, binge one night and I'm just like looking up trad grip, watching video after video. And there was this like, Jim Chapin would have called him a Kevlar head, like a marching guy yep. um, who gave this demonstration. And the grip was different <coughs> than what I knew. Um, and it involved, I had a pretty lazy index finger, which is no good. And um, I mean that, if, you don't, if you're not using the index finger correctly, it's not going to work. <laughs> so this guy said the thumb must always be on top of the index finger, right? And I'm like, oh, wow, I've never really taken that seriously. So, well, that's different. So I'm going to try that. That's a marching thing. Great. From mm. some Kevlar head. And he seemed to be able to play okay. The video had a lot of hits. And I can't remember his name now. But anyway, so I, I'm like, yeah, well, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to really, like, I'm going to get the angle of my drums right. I, I started slanting them, like, according to the angle of the stick. And I had my toms, like, sloping down here, like this, cascading. Yep. And um, cymbals on my right-hand side were very, very low. And it was cool. I, I got started getting used to that. It was nice. After about, I don't know, eight, eight or nine months of that, it was like, yeah, I, I really dig this setup. And I... And it's funny because I wasn't getting enough definition out of my tom-toms at this time. So I, I started using smaller toms. I started using like an 8 and a 10 and a 12 and a 14 instead of the usual 10, 12, 14, 16, you know. And yeah. <laughs> this going to put you there. Very much inspired by, yeah. by that guy. And, and, um, and I, yeah, this is happening for me. This sound... This setup, this touch, I'm getting this this size of drum to speak, um, and I don't know. It would have been late May. Um, I started to develop a sensitivity inside my index finger. Oh shit! Like there's a similar kind of nerve response, right? And I'm like, oh god, I wow! I've, so I've started engaging it, and now now it's maybe I've just got a really sensitive nervous system, you know. So I went inside and I said to my wife, oh, I think I'm going to have to actually just, you know, it's time to shoot the horse and move on, you know, like, it's gotten me this far. And she said, we'll do it. Right at exactly, like, that day, just out of pure coincidence, I got an email from an old friend of mine, um, Andy, um, who's um, a drummer, he... Friend, I met him through Jamie Cameron, and um, we've stayed in touch over the years. He just sent me, just out of the blue, this video with two links in it. He said, hey man, check out this open clothes shit. And I'm like, oh, I'm not interested in any of this, you know. But, but I clicked on the links anyway, because I thought, well, it's nice to some, if someone sends you something like that. Yep. So the first link was this Brazilian guy. I, I just can't remember his name right now. I, I had it down for a while, but it's, it's gone now. Uh, playing the fastest kind of push-pull stuff I've ever seen. Oh, is it the... Uh, if you say it, I'll recognize Mater? it. No, Mater not Mater? that guy. I know, I know oh, right, yeah. he's on Instagram, right? Incredible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, this is another guy. This guy is even more ridiculous than that. Okay. I'll, I'll send you a link. Right? Yeah. And um, 
even more Johnny Reb ridiculous. Oh, was he, I think Johnny Reb uses the rim, doesn't he? Like he sort of... Oh, he does too, yeah. yeah. So No, this is just all in the hand. Oh, and, right. and also like hand-to-hand stuff. So like doing, like overlaying each hand. So you've got like a doubly fast. Right. You've got the push-pull in both hands for a single... It's just... It sounds like white noise. It's so fast, you know. Right. And and I'm like, this is unbelievable. And then and then uh, and then in the next link, he said, and this guy's got a great explanation of this technique. Clicked on the link, and it was a, a video by a drummer in Minnesota called Gordy Knutson. Yep. Now I had heard his name before, but I, I was not familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out he's the drummer in the Steve Miller band. Mm-hmm. He has been for like over 20 years, yep, yep. and um, my dad used to listen to Steve Miller in, in my youth, um, you know, Abracadabra and yep. The Joker and those those hits. I'm like, oh wow, okay, this is the guy who plays with uh, Steve Miller, cool, right. And he's got these just unbelievably clear and concise um, explanations of, like, in the first place, how to use your fingers, which I hadn't taken seriously prior to this, and it was all done with match grip. And I thought, oh, that's how that's how I'm going to get my doubles underway. And I decided that night, I'm going to change. I'm going to change the match script. Here's the guy I'm going to follow to 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 get this going on. And and <laughs> I had a gig the next night at uh, Foundry Six One Six with John Harkins, the piano player, playing like lots of sort of bebop tunes. And uh, and I took my little eight inch tom and all that and played and I, I got the spirit level out and I flattened my drums out yeah because you can't play matched on those ridiculous angles yeah and even though the spirit you level actually said, got a spirit level. yeah I did I did because <laughs> because they were flat but I thought yeah. that they were tilting to the left right you know you, I, you I, must I was, have just been a year of this yeah right yeah was enough you know it's only just now I'm feeling comfortable having everything kind of set up for yep. match you know yep <laughs> and um yeah, so I had to get the spirit level out. I'm on that gig with Harkins the next night, and it was just... Uh, I'm, I'm sure the music was okay, but the feeling... I felt so tense and horrible. Right. Uh, and I'm sure it permeated the, the gig, and I was just like, God, I'm, I'm really going to have to shed, you know. And, and so I thought, well, I'm just going to... And then I just kept clicking on all of Gordy Knudsen's videos, and he's got this unbelievably elaborate set of videos on how to play op- it's called open close which some people refer to it as push pull but like um he, he turns out to be quite a quite a character and, and quite a like a an original thinker like mm-hmm. I, I actually think he's a genius mm-hmm. um and uh actually these books here on the stand are the, they're his books okay um and I wrote back to Andy and said, man, thank you so much. You must have just been reading my mind. I needed this, like, exactly right now. You've really helped me. I'm going to make the transition to match grip. And then a week later, I got a message from um, Andrew Hadgood, who runs the Vintage and Custom Drum Expo. And he said, hey, uh, and he had announced that he was bringing Benny Greb out Mm. in August. Mm. So this is, you know, I guess early, early June now. Yeah, a week after I changed to match grip, got, still feeling pretty shitty. Yeah. And I got a message from Andrew saying, would you consider opening for Benny Greb in his Sydney, Sydney clinic? And I'm like, oh, I'm a beginner. Right. <laughs> you know, like... That's how you felt, yeah. Yeah, I did. Like, I, I, I felt absolutely like a beginner. And, and if you really think about it, I was a beginner 
first time really playing match script and actually practicing the techniques mm -hmm. and using the hand properly and, and um, I thought well <laughs> uh, I'll you know it's in August so there was like I don't know 10, 10 weeks or so so I, I took it as a challenge and I said love to so then he wrote back and said, great, well, look, um, I'll have to run it by Sonor and Benny first, you know, but I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And I, once I closed that message, I thought, well, there's no way they're going to say, yeah, this guy can open for Benny. It's not going to happen anyway, so that's good. I can just go back to being my <laughs> beginner self, you know. And then I got a message, I don't know, maybe two weeks later, and Andrew said, like, yeah, Benny's into it. <sighs> so it's on. And I thought, right, well, now's, now's the time. And... Um, so I started studying Gordy's thing pretty seriously and uh, I think I almost gave myself tendonitis mm. practicing so much so quickly. Um, and I also discovered, uh, um, I was on Instagram one night and, and uh, I followed Chad Wackerman on there and uh, he put up a post that said, enter this code into drum channel and get 20, 25% off my Murray Spivak course. Wow, I didn't even know he did a Murray Spivak course. And it's funny because when I started looking at Gordy's thing, I thought I, I didn't really know much about the Murray Spivak method, but echoes of it were present in what, what he was delivering in these videos. And I thought, well, hey, I'm, I'm open-minded. The, the Gordy Knutson open-close thing and the, and the shift completely blew my mind wide open. I had to suspend just about everything that I thought I knew that was going to get me into, into mm -hmm. my old age. And just go, well, it's gotten me this far. Again, mm -hmm. the, the term I use is it's time to shoot the horse and move on. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I want to get any further, I have to do some new stuff. So, um, yeah, I was, I was open to Murray Spivak, you know. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't a member at Drum Channel, but I, I signed up and, and I bought, and then had to buy Chad's course in addition to that. Yep. But I, I put the code in and got my discount. Yeah. Um, and it's like, maybe six or eight hours of footage of Chad demonstrating with Don Lombardi as his student, like the Murray Spivak technique, um, including this grip and, and, a, and a completely new treatment on the rudiments and a practice routine. These were three things that had not come across my table in the way that they came previously. And, and I, I was like, so that coupled with Gordy's thing was just like, holy shit, this is... This is the, the, the treasure trove here of, of, of things to look at technically. This is what's going to carry me forward. And mm. this may get me over the line to at least being able to show up to the Benny gig. Right. Because uh, I, I felt like cancelling just about every day. Um, but I just I committed to practicing more and more and more. Um, and, um, and I always know how something went by the way I feel in the car on the way home. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes you, you might think, oh, I might accidentally just drive off that bridge, you know? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think, oh, I'm gonna do that, <laughs> but like, if that happened, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. You know? Okay. Um, not, <laughs> I don't mean in those terms. Um, no, I meant, just what I mean is, do, do you get that, does it hit you that much? Yeah, it does. Get, yeah, right. Yeah, oh, right. yeah I'm, I'm working on that's, overcoming that. It's, it's, that's been a big problem for years. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I would be in a dressing room after a gig just in silence with storm clouds Fire around out. me, you know, and it might have even been a good gig, but my feeling about it wasn't good, you know, and, and I just, you know, and I let it permeate my life and it wasn't healthy. And, yeah. um, but 
I'm really happy to be able to say it was cool, man. Because like, I I really went to more trouble than I think I've gone to for any other gigs. I figured, well, I'm going to play to Benny Greb's like 300 plus Sydney audience. It's not my audience; it's his audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, like, they're not there to see me, but they're I'm mean, going to be inflicted upon them. Yeah. Um, I'd better make a good impression or at least as as good an impression as as i can they deserve it you know they have to suffer through half an hour of something someone other than benny mm. i've got to give him my best um so yeah i, I practiced and i i worked on my tunes a lot more than i ever have for any other clinic and and just like just thinking about soloing and why i i feel like i've failed on every other clinic previously mm. um and i never wanted to solo because I, I had ideas. I, I can solo on gigs. No worries if I'm soloing on a tune or, or even just a free introduction to a tune. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can do that. No worries. But but on a, in a clinic environment, it was like it was really hard to just walk out there cold and just start playing solo. So I thought, well, I won't do that. Mm-hmm. I turned uh, like the end of it. I thought, well, if it works on a gig to sort of have a solo attached to a tune. Uh, and because I'm playing with my, my like logic on my computer, I can't have a free intro to a tune. So I, I turned, like I used, I made a cadenza out of the the last chord of the la- of one of the tunes, and I just thought, well, I'll just I'll just just go past the end of the tune and just let it rip into a, into a solo, you mm-hmm. know. And and I I actually felt um, I I got better ones out I think in in my rehearsals, mm-hmm. um, but I think that getting those out helped me get out what I did get out on the, on the gig, which yep. was, I think, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Probably could be a lot better, but, but it was acceptable. Yep. And, and, um, and the tunes worked well. My audio setup actually finally worked for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, like I, I had my drums tuned down a fourth lower than usual. Right. I put new heads on and I'm like, God, oh, this sound, and I started, and I decided to move, like the, the, there was, about six weeks after I changed to MASH, I did one, I filled in for Andrew Dickerson one night on a jazz jam session in the city. And they had a little 18-inch bass drum in the house and I just had to take a snare drum and some hardware. So I didn't even have any tom-toms. And I'm playing, and I'm playing with these young kids from the con who were, I didn't know this kid was 18, um, right. Yannick Coffey. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, guitarist. And, and they really kicked my ass that night. But I, I, I felt like I could keep up with their young asses, you know? And, yeah. And and I felt like for the first time, ah, oh, after six weeks, yeah, it's that's, working. That's and that's, at that point, I knew I've just got to now concentrate on the music for for this Benny set. And um, and yes, yeah, so we've got some new heads. And I realised uh, actually the eight inch Tom shits me. You know, like <laughs> it, it's really limited in its yeah. sound. And and um, so I thought, well, okay, I'll just move them back up again to the bigger sizes. And it's funny because with the Spivak and Knutson techniques. I could suddenly get the articulation out of my toms that I'd been missing previously and why I was using the smaller sizes. And it was okay to tune them down quite a bit from where I was before. So they actually had this real life to them that, that I hadn't... It was all new. Awesome. Um, and, um, yeah, so so that was... Um, yeah, so it was weird, you know. Like, why would you ask a beginner to open for Benny Graham. <laughs> That's yeah. how I felt. But yeah, yeah. I thought, well, I'll, I'll get it together if I can. So, yeah, um, the drive home, I, I, I felt, um, Benny was awesome. Like, we got about half an hour to hang out backstage before I went on and we just, 
there were a lot of people there, but we just got this time alone and we, we just started chatting and, and he, he really helped me. I hope I wasn't, I don't think I was outwardly uh, nervous yep. or anxious, but yep, I, mean, yep, yep. I, I certainly felt nervous on the inside. Maybe he sensed that or not, but he really, the things that he said, he just really helped me calm down and just feel good about just being myself. Yeah, he's something else, isn't he? He is. Yeah. He's really tapped into something that's yep. Um, deep yep. that, that a lot of people like to hear. And it's, it's, I don't know what it is, nothing to do with the drums. It's just the holistic image that he puts yep. forward. It's, it's yep. really, really inspiring. Mm. A lot of my students are big fans. Of that. I, I found out about him through my students, you know. Right. Um, originally but it was cool like when I when I set up at the venue like you know everyone's there helping out and and I had my drums there and um you know with people like that you normally have to introduce yourself oh hi I'm such and such from from Sydney and I you know but it was cool because he'd obviously checked me out to know whether or not he was going to approve having me play so he when he arrived he beat me to the oh nice to meet you man you know awesome Uh, I said oh I didn't have to introduce myself. That's cool. And, um, uh, yeah, well, not that that means anything, but it was just, it was a cool experience for me. That is a cool thing. Make you feel special. Yeah. Yeah. For the brief moment in your life. (laughs) Now, um, what, um, what music do you listen to for recreation to feel good? Is it jazz or do you listen to sort of modern? Well, uh, and 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 how does that music make you feel? Are you are you analysing the music, or do you can you get into music, close your eyes, and just groove and get lost? It it's a day to day thing for me. I, I used to like you know when I was a lot younger, I would if I had to do a tax return or something, I, I would put Tony Williams on and yep, yep. and and listen. You know, yep. or I think it was a distraction from yep. the you know the, the annoying. Um, burden of having to do your tax return um but these days I, I can't listen to anything when when i'm doing something i i, I just can't because i i get completely it takes you somewhere yeah, yeah it yeah. does so yeah. i i only listen to, to listen you know and i can't help but listen with analytical ears I, okay. i've analyzed stuff for question. so many years yeah it, it is just that's I mean, what i was really i was thinking a lot about that today you mm. know, being as analytical as you are and you know how much study you do and the deep thinking you do, and especially after after listening to Jeff's hmm. podcast, I knew that was a question I had to ask. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like I, when I say analytical, but I mean, like, all anal- analysis means is to break something down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yep. um, I might just concentrate on something, but I'm not. I'm not like I, I should be clear to say that like I'm not analyzing it in a theoretical way. Yep. I, I just listen to the sound, and I and I enjoy, I enjoy really good sound. Um, the thing I've been listening to most lately is Kate Bush's album Ariel from 2005 um, like over and over again in the car I can't get enough of it um, I, I did a, a gig on a house party about a year ago a friend of mine who I'd, I'd, I record a lot of TV jingles for um, he sometimes puts parties on in his house and um, I've, I've been going over and playing the drums anyway his wife is a singer and um he sent a list of tunes that we were going to cover that night, and one of them was this track "Pi" by Kate Bush. "Pi" is in the number "Pi," you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this would be interesting. I haven't listened. I don't know anything about. I mean, I, you know, Kate Bush had some iconic hits when I was a kid, and I saw her on the Kenny Everett show, and you know, mm-hmm. she's she's out there in the collective unconscious. But 
uh, wasn't aware of her career moves. And anyway, I, I, I put this track on and, and I nearly fell out of my seat. Um, it was so... She can sing about anything mm-hmm. in, 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 in the most interesting possible ways um, with, with the most emotive uh, vocal prowess. And she plays great piano too. And, and I think she has a lot of say in the production of her albums. You know, she plays a lot of the synthesizers on there. And, um, and I was just absolutely intrigued and transfixed by this track, Pi. So I, I, I thought, well, I did a bit of research on her and it turns out that was part of an album that was a comeback album for her in 2005. She, she put her career on hold for like 12 years to raise her son. Mm-hmm and then released this album and I was completely ignorant of it when it came out. I had my head fair and square on my ass, you know, in jazz snobbery. I just started my PhD that year. So I didn't want to know what Kate Bush was up to. And, um, but this just kind of completely woke me up out of this mm. stupor. And, and I'm like, wow, this is, I want to play music like this. Mm. You know, and I wrote to the drummer, Stuart um, Elliott in London, I said, man, what great playing on that album. And he wrote back and said, oh, thank you, you know. Um, and I checked out the rest of the album. I put it on the car and my daughter and I listened to it and she loves it, you know. And there's one track on there called A Coral Room. And just about every time I listen to it, I cry. No drums, it's just Kate Bush singing and playing the piano and singing about her mother. And um, I can't explain it. Uh, it may be, at least at the moment, my, my favourite piece of music, for reasons I can't explain. The, the more modern artist for me that does that is Adele, for me. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. See, I haven't checked out enough, but I know that voice. Like, It's what year one song on a new album. I, I was driving to a gig, and um, I was driving to the, the Epping Tunnel, mm. across the, not across City Tunnel, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, Lankhove Tunnel. Lankhove Tunnel, yeah. yep. Driving through that and the song came on and you can you can hear the electric bass and you hear some keys and she starts singing and oh, <laughs> oh yeah. tears streaming down my face. I'm going, what yeah. the hell is this? What? That's the statement. Oh my God, you know, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was just, it was the sounds, it was the sound of the bass and the piano and, and her voice mm. just... Sound incredible. Well, I mean, it's nice to I know that, explain it. Yeah. that you can go there, right? You oh, know, yeah. Like, like, yeah. And I think there's, there's, there's always an element of that in, you know, the, I guess the other um, music I've been listening to probably more than anything in the last almost five years is uh, a Swiss drummer composer by the name of Pierre Favre, mm-hmm. or Favre, I think is the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. The Pierre Favre Ensemble. Um, There is another genius right there. There's an album on ECM um, called Fluve. I, I, I think that's the pronunciation, which means flow. Mm-hmm. And um, he's got these, the Pierre Favre Ensemble is always a different lineup for every album. And his writing is just off the wall. It's really fantastic, large ensemble, almost chamber music. But his drum set, he's got this massive set of drums. Uh, like a vintage Ludwig set with a with an 18-inch bass drum on his right foot and a 24-inch bass drum on his left foot and three toms 
two floor toms, and, but then all these other like dumbbells and big yep. like cheese wheel looking thing, massive big thing, and yep. and and congas and bongos that he hits with mallets and brushes mm-hmm. and his hands, and these racks and racks of piety symbols and gongs. <laughs> I I read about him in Modern Drama. Peter Erskine was on the cover. I think it was November 1993. Pierre Favre was the second story. And um, I remember seeing the photos of him. And um, I, I saw the CD in the in the store in Birdland one, one time. I had a radio show at the time. And I thought, oh, this would be interesting. Pierre Favre. I've actually been meaning to check him out. And I used to play it on my radio show. And I have a theory... <laughs> that he was incredibly influential in the 1970s. Turns out he was the Paiste symbol rep for the Paiste headquarters. You know, he's Swiss, right? right? Yeah. And if you, if you look at it, um, all the jazz drummers at the time, um, Jack DeJanet, Al Foster, and Paul Motion in particular, were all playing Paiste symbols. Hmm. So they were dealing with Pierre Fabre. And... Um, who knows did he influence them I think he did because his first album was in 1967 it was on ECM a tape of solo drumming called Solo Drums I think Mm -hmm. and um, it's a concert it was a live concert that was recorded and exquisite sound man I've got to say I only heard that for the first time I think last year and you consider what was coming out of America in 1967 and how amazing that was. This is amazing in a whole other way. Mm. Um, it's definitely a precursor to anything that Terry Bozio was getting into, um, but in a much more subtle way. And he's really opened up my mind about the drum set with getting a really vast array of um, timbres and pitches and just contrasting sounds long notes short notes high and low you know really like brittle and soft um, I mean if I could be half the drummer Pierre Favre is I would that would that would be a life well lived you know um, and I wrote to him and I said man thank you so much turns out his daughter lives in um, Malambimbi mm. and he's been out here a couple of times and he said he said in his lovely sort of broken English I mean he speaks well probably three languages so yep. you can forgive him <laughs> yep. um, uh, he says you know I'm I'm retiring to my cellar every night to try and figure out the mysteries <laughs> so you know he's in his 70s mm. and he's still trying to figure it out you know his mm. compositions are absolutely sublime mm. um, so yeah so Pierre Favre and Kate Bush are probably what I've been checking out most as well yep. as like I'll, I'll get nostalgic and get all my old Andy Gander recordings every now and right. again if I want to really just get a dose of drumming yeah sure of Nicole Udo or Tony Williams yep. or Elvin um, and I always come back to Jack DeJanette but I mean they just they come and go yeah of course. but but these I'm really interested in the fact that all I've been interested in the last few years have yeah. been Pierre Favre and, and Kate, Kate Bush, Bush. yeah, yeah. um and actually, you know, the other thing, like I mentioned Paul Motion a few times today, like um, that same honeymoon that I was on with my wife when Sandy Evans called and offered me the job in 10-part invention. Well, I was in New York and um, another, uh, there's, a, there's a great drama, I don't know if you know, Loz Benson. Yeah. Um, I Loz, don't know her personally, I know she is. Uh, she's great. She's, she's really a lot of fun and she's a great drummer and a great singer too. Um, 
real motivated person. Um, I've known Loz for quite a few years. And anyway, it turns out she happened to be in New York at that same time um, that we ended up in New York on the honeymoon. And, uh, and I saw the Paul Motion was playing in the Cornelius Street Cafe. So Loz and I were like, you know, hey, what's on? Let's, let's go and see a gig together, you know. So my wife had a dinner date with an old school friend of hers and Paul Motion was playing. So I got to, I got to leave past to go and see Paul Motion with Lois Benson and her family. And, the, you know, the Cornelia Street Cafe was, was as narrow as a, as a toothpick, you know, and really long. And up, right up the end of the room, you could see, like, there was enough room for a piano, double bass, and a small set of drums. I could see, yeah, that, that is Paul Motion up there. And, yeah, it's like September 2011. And I had seen him previously at the Village Vanguard and knocked me out, you know, with the, he was playing with Joe Lovano and Bill Frizzell. That was really something else. But, but this time it was just with this uh, pianist, Annette, Annette somebody, I can't remember her last name, um, and somebody Wong on bass. And I have, I have to admit this, you know, um, it's a, it, 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 it reveals shortcomings and limitations in my, you know, uh, I'll make myself vulnerable here, you know, like, I, I have to admit, I was standing there going, I don't get this. I, I love Paul Motion, my God, I had all these albums of his, and I'm listening to this gig, and I'm going, it just sounds unrehearsed, and he's missing endings. You know, you'd hear students do a better job of endings than this. this is, these are the thoughts that were going through my head. And, you know, and he sort of, he walked past me at, after the set, and I, it was one of those moments where you go, oh, do I, don't I, you know, and I, I didn't, I let him go. I saw Loz there and talked to her and we were both saying, yeah, gee, you know, I'm not really sure if that was worth it. It was expensive to get in there, this tiny little toothpick of a room. Anyway, a few years later, I was on the internet and I found a blog article by this bassist, Wong. I think, it, I'm pretty sure it was Wong, somebody Wong. And uh, he was talking about that gig, which turned out to be Paul Motion's last gig before he died. He died about two weeks later. Oh, shit. So Lars and I were at Paul Motion's last gig, and we were both going, ah, you know. And again, like it reveals shortcomings, and I, I won't speak for Lars. Um, so he probably wasn't very lucid. Well, was yeah, he was sick. Like sick, I think he had yeah, some yeah. kidney problems or something. But yeah, right. But the the funny thing is that it was actually videotaped, and it's on YouTube. So you know, this blog article linked to the video. And I, okay, I'm like, and I, well, I'm going to watch this gig back again. And, and also in the blog article, he mentioned that they deliberately, like they'd booked him for the specific purpose of not rehearsing and not revealing any of the music to him in advance, that he just had to respond to what he heard. So now I know that, I'm armed with that knowledge, and I go back and I listen to it, and it's unbelievably great. Yeah, right. You know, but yeah, when yeah. I was there in person and I didn't understand what they were going for, it didn't. It didn't strike me. You probably weren't the only ones in the room. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it was a well-known thing that you know. Oh, okay. I've yeah. heard lots of things about him. Like if ever a band leader asked him to do something, he would do the opposite. <laughs> yeah, right. So you had, if you wanted to do something, you'd have to ask him to do the opposite to get him to do. It. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, he was kind of a real creative, um, uh, you know, wacky guy like that, I believe, and. Um, yeah, that, I think about that all the time. I just think about like, you know, like uh, on many levels, I mean, I, I don't want to get lost in it, but 
just yeah to listen back to it you know years later and understanding the context and just going well wow this is actually really amazing mm. why why am i so limited that i couldn't appreciate it in situ right at the time i'll never understand it mm. well maybe hopefully i will but mm. i don't expect that these things can be understood um but it, it, it sort of helped me kind of feel like i need to be more open when i'm listening to something you know like the jazz awards are coming up this weekend mm. And I had to listen to 46 recorded entries hmm. so that we could pick a top 10, you know. And um, it was, you know, I couldn't go more than, it took about 15 hours. And I couldn't go more than two and a half hours at a time. Like, as soon as I started to feel myself get fatigued, I yeah, stopped. Because I, I didn't want to give anyone yeah, less well, of a helped. chance. Yeah, than, that's, that's right. But, um, and gee, there are some great young drummers around. I mean, right. obviously 36 people got disappointed that they weren't in the top 10, but... But I mean, there wasn't one entry there that shouldn't have been there. Everyone was great. Everyone had their own strengths and weaknesses. Right. Um, some had more and some had less, I guess, you know. But just, I'm always questioning that, like, like how, like, really genuinely, spontaneously being in the moment and, and trying to appreciate the value that's, like, well, right here right now, here, you know. Yes. It's, like, it's, 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 um, it's a challenge to try and find it. Yeah. Slot into that groove. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think about like, you know, then then how does that affect playing? Um, how how much of, you know? I, I record all my gigs. Okay. And I listen back to them, and, and I'm always surprised. Like, why didn't, why didn't I hear that little thing that the piano player did there? I remember I remember this bit, and I remember that bit, but I. Wasn't even aware that that was going on. That's something I could have responded to. Why, why didn't I hear it? And how can I, I open my? Are list? you hard on yourself when you hear it? Oh well, I mean, Steve McKenna used to say to me on gigs like, "Oh, mate, you know, it's gone. Just forget about it." If I made a mistake yeah, yeah. or something, you know, just yeah. just forget about it, move on. Um, no, I'm I'm trying to like. Like those storm clouds I mentioned before. That's what just thinking, driving home. I'm, I'm, no, I'm trying to overcome that. Yep. Like, because there, there is it. Like, yeah, if I made a mistake in the first tune on a gig, and there's still two sets to do, I, it used to be that that one mistake would ruin my feeling for the rest of the gig. And maybe the music was okay, but I was in such a state that it didn't feel good to me. And yeah. So I think that if you are in that state, I think that does affect the music. And I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to... I, mean, I don't know what... Um, I have, I've actually I've been working on it very conscientiously um, and observing it. And actually, I have been able to push it aside, recognising the difference between the feeling and the, and the thought and, the, and, I don't know, um, just, just the, the online experience of it. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's not. Yeah, so I think McKenna was right. Just move on. You know, it's, it's gone. It's in the past. You can't fix it. Yeah. You can't change it. It's yeah. just you have to accept what it is. And yeah. that acceptance is a is a big call. Like, you know, I think um, all these great names that we've been talking about tonight. You know, I, like Vinnie Colaiuta comes to mind, and I think it's almost as though like he would be happy to um, offer any recording of any single occasion of him playing the drums, you know, and it just happens to be that this stuff came out that day. If he did it the following day, it would have been different stuff that came out, or even, even another take. Um, it just happened to be that take, you know, and, you know, and then 
we can obsess over that stuff and go, oh my God, that's incredible. But it was just like, oh, that's just, that's what I did then. Yeah. But play it tomorrow and I'm going to do something else. And it seems to me, someone like that and, you know, Andy Gander and these, these genius drummers are, um, unless they genuinely do screw up, I mean, you, you rarely hear it. They're so concentrated. Um, yeah, it seems like, yeah, I want to get to that level where, where, you know, I'll, I'll be, like, I, and when I record, um, I want to try and, I want to be able to live with every take, especially in the jazz environment, because someone might screw up their solo on this take, but everything else was perfect, or someone screwed up the head, and, and for whatever reason, for the setup, they can't overdub it fixes or anything like that, right. there might be a spill going into the other microphones, yeah, and yeah. so... You know, these things happen. In, in, inevitably, someone's going to be not happy with something. Yep. You don't know. And I, I decided to try and make that not me. Cool. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I haven't made it yet, but yeah, that's yeah. my goal, is to, like, to try and work on my thing so that it's good enough. That, that, yeah, so that they can take any part of it they want. I think Miles said that after one of the two. He said, you can take any part of that you want. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want that. Yeah. I, I, that's what I... That's what I'm striving for because it's yeah. like life's too short otherwise to have all the anxiety. Oh no, I didn't, you know, to get precious about all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's a lot of work. Like it's 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 like on many levels, you know, just trying to learn how to concentrate. That's um, hard. Mm. Yeah. I've always wanted to know how sort of. Uh, modern day endorsements work as opposed to how they may have been back in the early days sure. are things changing are you having to do different things now to promote these companies with social media and right, right. stuff like that as to you know how it used to be before social media yeah, media, you yeah. Know what I'm well yeah I guess uh, I'm one of those I can't remember which what the name of my particular generation is it's, it's, it's a funny name it's not X and it's not Z it's yeah. There's a unique one for people born in... The other same in, one. Yeah, right. Similar, yeah. yeah, so we straddle the analogue and digital worlds. Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. Um, grew up analogue and yep. have an adult life in a digital world. And, yep. Um, yeah, so it was all still very much analogue when I signed up. With, well, I didn't sign up. There's no contract as such. Yep. Like they, Sonal pretty much, <coughs> I guess, has a largely... I mean, I'm sure the top tier guys like Jack Digenet and those guys is probably contractual, but it's pretty much a, a gentleman's uh, contract, you might say. So it's an okay. agreement, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I mean, I used to, when I was living at home, I for a little while there, I used to babysit some of our family friends' kids, earn a little bit of pocket money. Um, and just help them out, you know, and and um, and I was madly in love with the drums at this time, and I used to go to the music shop and get, just borrow all their catalogues. Yeah, yeah. So that I could yeah. just like pour over them. So I used, to, you know, and I, I just I looked at all the catalogues from all the manufacturers, you know, and 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 we saw Phil Collins play at the Entertainment Center in 1990, I think, and he had Chester Thompson playing. Yep. So Phil had a black Gretsch kit with his yep. concert toms. Yep. And and Chester Thompson had an that ebony signature boob um so ebony. The, yeah, I know, I know the kit. Yeah. With like every tom size you could get. Yeah. And, and I've got um, the 
but seriously live VHS. That's the one. Yeah, and I've watched that a thousand times. So I know Me that too. kit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. The sound of Chester's drums that night, oh, yeah. and on that video. Yep. Just, I mean, I love Phil Collins' sound, but Chester, his sixteen-inch floor. Yeah. Even the higher tom. Yeah, all of them. But Phil's drums sort of barked. Yep. But Chester's drums, they roared. You know, like. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But it was a certain quality of controlled roar. And I you know, that overhead footage of him and that drum duet, you know, and he'd boom, boom, go, 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 you know. Yep. I'm, I was like, wow, that's, that's the sound. And I started to read all the different catalogues, and I'm like, yeah, well, Sonor, absolutely, man, these yep. are the best drums. So they were still owned by the Link family in these days. Uh, the original founders, they, they right. fled from East Germany, and they, like, they, they actually... <laughs> Like they survived, you know. Like the the Sonor factory was appropriated in the the war, war times, and they were commissioned to make, you know, um, uh, military, uh, you know, devices rather than <laughs> snare drums. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they fled. Um, wow. Which which link was it? Um, Otto Link, I think, and and mm. you know his grandson Horst. So they fled and got made it to the west unbelievable and they didn't die mm. you know so I was like wow the history is really quite rich these guys have been around since I think it's 1875 I think mm -hmm. and they managed to get through that you know and I'm, I'm looking at the these real like they, they they commissioned the German Institute of Physics to conduct tests on how a drum how sound is actually made yep. in a drum mm. and they determined that it's actually the resonance of the drum head that produces the sound and the the shell should be passive actually um and it, it it becomes a kind of a resonating chamber but it is actually the vibration of the heads actually this is really interesting right glad you asked <laughs> i've got a theory here that yep. you know um and i said you know if 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 it's like if the shell is really dense and thick and rigid and passive as in it doesn't vibrate it doesn't matter how you mount it right you might remember the sonar drums in the 80s had those big protruding arms like the Pearl and Yamaha thing, but they also had this, the Tom mount actually went significantly inside the shell and it had this interesting way of holding the arm. Right. I had a set of signatures for a few years there, so I, I, I'm aware of it, and, and they were unique drums. I almost regret, regret getting rid of them, but I, I, I had to. I, I'm glad they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, the, the resonance of the head. That's what produces the sound in a drum. So, and that's what, that's, if you make the shells right, the fundamental tone of the drum projects. You don't get funny overtones. Yep. You know, that instantly made me think of Chester's floor toms. Right. You know. Anyway, so I started hearing, um, I got a Steve Smith Vital Information live album, and I knew he was a sonar player. And the drums sound incredible on that. They're either highlights or, or sonar lights. Um, I'm not sure, um, but either way, the, like uh, every recording I've heard him play on, the sound is is unbelievable. And, and then I started hearing Jack DeJanet on highlights and old sonar lights, and and I heard Adam Nussbaum with his signature highlights, and Jeff Tain Watts, and I'm like, well, ever since I was young, this is the sound for me. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't trying to commercialize the ABC, <laughs> yeah. but I thought, well, okay, I'm going to be on TV every week for a year. I'm going to use, I'm going to leverage that 
and take the opportunity to try and get some endorsements set up. So um, I wrote to um, I wrote to Tony Italia at they were called Sonor Link in Melbourne at the time, the distributor for Sonor, and I said, look, I'm going to be on TV. I love Sonor. I, I always wanted to play them. I would love to promote the brand on the ABC. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, would you Would you be into? I wrote him a letter and and I told him I'll, I'll call you in a week. And I called him and he said, I got your letter. And uh, he said, Well, what do you want from us? And I said, Well, I, like I said, the drums, please. You know. Um, so I I got a really good deal on um, a set of um, designer drums, which were custom ordered. And ironically enough, they arrived the very day after we finished production for the year. And even though the show was supposed to go on into the next year, the ABC changed management and they ended up cutting our show. Right. So we didn't, the show didn't go on. Um, but I had these drums and my goodness, like, I'm so grateful. Sonor has kept me on yeah. all these years. Yeah. And how long has that um, been now? Well, 21 years. Well, okay. So, sorry, 90, it'll be 20 years next year. Yeah, wow. Um, that was 1999. So... Um, you know, and I've, I've kept up a good relationship with Tony and I, I try to, yeah, the drums, the drums speak for themselves. Yeah. I don't have to speak for them. Yeah. Um, I just have to try and play good, you know, like it's interesting that I've, since I've changed my technique these last few months, my, I've got a ProLite brass snare that I use, um, and I haven't changed a thing about it and it sounds like a different drum. Okay. Because of the technique. And I suddenly I'm like. You know, the toms are speaking now. Right. The snare drum is much more crisp and refined. And I'm like, man, this is exactly the same set of drums I've been playing for about mm. four or five years now. So what do you think why do you think that is? Well this drum has mesh heads on it. So this okay. has a twin set in those bags. That go they yep. go out to gigs and this yep. just stays here. For, we're gonna get this soundproof in a couple yep. uh, next year I think. But for now I'm using silent stroke heads, right? Oh well, yeah. So you can't really tell the difference on here. Um, well, that's the same drum, but yep. Yep. when I like on the drums that have got proper heads on them, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's just much more crisp and much more sensitive. And I just noticed, like I was in the studio last week or week before last, <laughs> this is really responsive, more so than I ever remember it being. Um, is it because your body and your ears, ears are in a different spot when you hit, possibly? <sighs> From that to... Well, you know what the big difference is, I think, like, and I, I learned this through the Murray Spivak technique. I realized when I thought I was relaxed, the technique I was using before, I actually wasn't for nearly 20 years. Um, and that's bad. And when you think something's going well, and it's actually not. Mm. That messes with my head. Retrospectively, I go, God, what else wasn't right in my life all that time, you know? Um... And when you, when, you learn to, when you actually learn to play a proper stroke, which as far as I understand about Murray Spivak, like he was a, like Chad says this in the course, if you look Murray Spivak up on, on, on uh, Google, it brings up a Wikipedia page which lists him as an audio engineer. He was born in 1903, died in 1994, 91. And he actually was a, an audio engineer in New York, Russian guy, you know, but when you grew up in New York, he used to be a trap set player. So he'd get around town with the skulls and cowbells and stuff. And you know, he was actually a, like a legitimate symphonic snare drum player and played mallets as well. So the, the, the snare drum technique is that symphonic stuff. And 
he used to get around, what he would do is he would accompany silent films, <laughs> the traps, you know, and then suddenly the technology was available to add sound to movies. Well, guess what? He became a sound design engineer right. and, and ended up, um, he did sound design in the original King Kong in 1933. Right. You hear the chick screaming in the tree, ah, ah, you know, and, and, and the, the thing's roaring in the background, roar. Well, Murray Spivak invented that roar. It's like right. a lion and an elephant blended and played backwards yeah, or something, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and you hear the occasional little xylophone note poking out. You go, oh, that's Murray Spivak. So, and he did The Sound of Music and all these iconic films. Right. Anyway, so in the 70s when Chad was studying with him, he, he left the film industry and just concentrated on teaching and, and he was also Louis Belson's teacher. And so it, it's, it's actually coming from that symphonic background. Now, the technique that I knew was more sort of marching, rudimental, and, um, you know, Chapin said, yeah, this is appropriate for drum set. And it is, a lot of it is like Moller and all of that. It's just really incredible. But, but, but the, the, there's an aspect missing in my whole thing. And yeah, so when you, when you actually make a stroke, I'm really conscious of this these days. It's, it's almost become automatic. It's a few things to still tweak, but that you can actually, the rebound actually works properly. I, I mean, I'd have to go into great detail to explain it. I won't bother with that, but but that I've just I have noticed very recently that the sound has changed and I'm relaxed. That's yep. the main thing. It's like tension-free playing. Yep. So when you're relaxed, the blood's flowing through your body. You know what I mean? And, yep. and your brain gets that, gets yep. oxygenated, and you you you're gonna be more conscious. I think. So maybe maybe it is also a perceptual change. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe hearing things a bit differently as well as just actually affecting them differently. So I, I don't know. It's, it's just interesting to sort of observe. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sonor, like, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I'm very lucky. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've met Karl Heinz Menzel, um, uh, and and um, and I've been in touch um, with with the guys in Germany. I haven't been to the factory, but I'd love to go. Um, uh, um, but then, yeah, like I, I went with it because that's what I loved. Mm. And if I if they dropped me. Um, I'd be I'd be happy to still keep playing. These drums could last me until my death, you know, very happily. Yep. Um, and um, um, oh, you know, I mean, and it's the same for Bosphorus. Like I, I managed to free my mind. I used to play one of the big three. You know, I even had an endorsement deal um, when I was doing the TV show with one of the old big three. Mm -hmm. And then they, their distributor here just was the most ridiculous bullshit corporate setup. Right. They they were so inept at at being warm and staying in touch. And they had the artist guy changed hands all the time. I was writing emails to a defunct address that was three artist relations guys earlier. Right. And uh, it ended up losing. I used to get Christmas cards from that company. You know. Um, and then it stopped happening and I'm like, what's happened here? And they said, oh yeah, you, you, you stopped being in touch. And I'm like, I didn't stop being in touch. You stopped telling me who to write to. Like no one responded to my messages, but I kept sending them, you know? And I thought, well, you know, screw this. I don't want to be part of this anymore anyway. And this when my ears opened up to Bosphorus. I'm like, well, I can play anything I want now. Yeah. What sounds good to me? Yeah. <laughs> I started tapping, well, tapping around online actually on MP3s. Yeah. I heard these Bosphorus symbols and, and man, like. I still have the same, the, the, the symbols are in my bag over there. Yeah. 
come to every gig they've been with me pretty much almost 10 years and and still to this day man like those ride symbols the musicians i play with they say that's the symbol for me yes they all say it i love your symbols man they don't get in the way whereas these old symbols i used to have sure they sound nice for the drummer lots of tone but they get in the way of the music so i got all these compliments so i was like well these are the symbols for me for sure so i i was in brisbane on tour with galapagos duck and i know that the bosphorus distributor was up there so i wrote to them and invited them to the gig at the brisbane jazz club and um and said, look, I'd, I'd love to take the opportunity to, to promote the, the brand if, if that's at all possible. And I got a call the very next day and they said, oh, look, we checked you out and we'd love to have you. And, and would you like to try for a, like a deal with Bosphorus in Turkey? You know, some guys are happy to go with just the distributor, but like, and I said, well, if I can, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. So they ended up putting me forward and, and they went for it. And so they sent a contract out and I signed that. And they've been really lovely. Like they're very small operation yeah when I, it's the old old handmade turkish thing yes yeah. it's actually the same people same lineage of people who yeah. were doing the original ones you know so i mean these are actually for real handmade yeah those ones that are made like you can you can make it entirely with a machine and just hit it once with a human hand with a hammer and say it's hand hammer yeah, so that's a bit of yeah. bit of you know we'll add next to corporate it mendacity there you know um so to me these are the genuine yeah and i love i love uh, hitting them you know yeah um and gosh yeah so i i don't know i i just i just if i ever i'm in a if i have an opportunity if i'm in the world where um like i can leverage like if i do a yep. an appearance at a drum show or something like that i figure well if i'm performing at the same thing that you're paying money to exhibit at <laughs> well you know there's got to be some kind of alignment there um so I, I approach these guys and I say, look, I've been playing your product for years and I love it. I, I don't see myself using anything else. It took me a while to settle on my sticks, but I've been playing the Vader Session sticks for like 10 years now, since I got okay. the Bosphorus actually. Yeah. Like I'm like, what, what stick am I going to use? Yeah. Before that, I never knew what it was going to be, but I haven't played any other sticks since then. So mm-hmm. I, I managed to, you know, I'm very lucky. Every time I ask them, I expect them to say no, but they, they turn they? around and say yeah. yes. So Must um, be doing something right, mate. Well, I don't know what it is if, if I am, but like, uh, you'll see all these old DW stands here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a whole set of their new ultralight stands in my trap case. Now, these stay here. They're still a bit too heavy to take out, but I yeah. still love the functionality of them, so they stay here in the studio. And, yeah. Um, I managed to um, sign an agreement with them. And, um, yeah, I'm very, very lucky. It just, I don't know, it, I, I like being a part of that. I, You know, I mean, they... I mean, the social media thing, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I, I have a very modest presence on, on those things. Um, I try as good as I can to keep up appearances, but I don't, I'm not really that serious about it. My hand gets sore if I hold my phone too much, so I, yeah. I don't hold it as much yeah, yeah. anymore. Um, so I try to, I actually try to minimize that as much as I can, but if there's something good, I'll, I'll, I'll pop it up. I don't, I don't actually understand anything, like why, why is it there? Um, originally it was a good way to stay in touch with old friends on Facebook yeah. you know, but you're never really yeah. in touch with them anyway you know yeah, like yeah. those relationships yeah. it's nice but I don't know I, I don't really want to be on there like seeing like I might not have thought about this person yeah all of a sudden you're scrolling down you see and you're like oh it puts you in another state I'm, I'm trying it's I threw my TV out in 2000 yeah I didn't want the media yep having such an influence on me yep so I threw it out 
Yeah. And I never look back, you know. Cool. We, we've got a TV in the house, right? And, sure. and But we've got like Netflix and stuff. So it's yeah. sort of like, what well, if we want to watch something. Want. Yeah, yeah. We, we like that too. We don't just sit yeah. and watch TV. Mm. Um, but yeah, like the social media thing came in through mm. the back door, you know, and all of a sudden there's all the advertising and all this shit, you know. And, and I'm like, oh, oh, hang on. This is what I wanted to get rid of. Like, well, what is it now? 18 years ago now. And it's come back in a bigger more bold way it's more intrusive and it's in your face and it's there all the time you get the notification it's set up like a poker machine yeah you're right so is. I got addicted there for a while I'll admit it yeah um, but I, I'm really trying to control that because it, it really distracts me from actually what I want to do which is get better on the drums yeah so I found since I've started this podcast mm. I mean I've had to, you know, monitor to get the word out yeah but I'll be, I'm finding that I'm doing it too much right and I'm becoming kind of obsessed with it yeah yeah it's a, it's yeah. a tricky so, balance yeah it is yeah yeah so it's been stressing me out a bit yeah <laughs> that's why i was thinking about your your filing method oh, that yeah. you spoke about yeah i need something like that you know <laughs> that you know that i can put everything back in its place and you know it's tricky it's really tricky. it is yeah yeah like yeah. it's alive the whole thing is never yeah one thing that i've learned is that nothing is really ever static you know um yeah you can't ever put anything actually in its place. Um, I actually, you know, something that I've been getting into probably since that chat I had with Jeff is um, there's this method which I can thoroughly recommend called the KonMari method. There's this Japanese woman, Marie Kondo. So the KonMari method is based on her name. She's got a book out called um, the, the Art of Tidying or something like that. Mm -hmm which has turned into the KonMari method, you know, and she's got this elaborate process for tidying your premises through several stages. You know, the first thing you do is you, 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 you go through all your clothes, every single item of clothing, including shoes, belts, ties, you name it. You throw them all in a massive big pile and you handle each single one and you go, does this spark joy? Oh yeah. And you'd be surprised what kind of answers you get this thing you've been holding on to for years it doesn't yeah so if it's in a good shape you'll put it in a donate pile if it's no if it's no good to donate it's you just throw it in the bin yeah. and then you and you, and and the thing is you you hang on to the things that spark joy so actually right. all the clothes that you wear bring joy yeah, gotcha. to your life right yeah, yeah. so because that's the easiest thing to start with she she goes through different uh, stages so i've only just finished the second stage which is um tidying all of your books and magazines i've got just i mean the room next door here has just got wall-to-wall -wall books and magazines and what have you um like five more of those um and i had to go through and i i cleared out like a whole shelf worth of books and donated them all to lifeline yeah um because they're they're sort of a bit more tricky to get rid of but there are she she puts forward cases for like really strong cases for getting rid of books that you actually thought you should hang on to um, so that was, that was a great decluttering process. The next thing for me is like going through this bloody great big filing cabinet. And what I'm going to try and do is reduce that, get rid of that and have only what I need in those three folders over there. Yeah. Right. Like the process yeah. can reduce that four drawers of filing cabinet. I mean, this drawer here is full of all the music I've played for the last 20 years. So. Right. Do I hang on to that? I don't know. Like, does it spark joy? I guess I have to go. You have to go through every single piece of paper. Right, I gotcha. Yeah. And ask the question: Does this spark joy? So I'll probably find a lot of that does. Though. You, you know, well, memories come I back suspect and, so, and that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. You know, yeah. But they're probably more there for like sentimental reasons. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, 
yeah, then you go through, uh, yeah, so clothes, books, then papers. That's that section that I'm about to start. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, like household stuff, but we're actually pretty good inside. Like we've, we've got a minimalist set up in there and it's all organized and tidy. My wife's great for that. So that's actually already done. That's just how we live. Yep. Uh, and then the fifth area is, um, like the mementos, this, and sure. that. so that's, that's, you've got such an emotional attachment to these things. So yep. you've gone through these other ones to get better at answering that question. Does this spark joy? And then finally you can sort of get rid of these things that you, you felt you needed to hang on to. And that's a fascinating process. Um, I feel much lighter, actually. Uh, less things to worry about. Like, I want to simplify my life. Awesome. Um, and that's one way um, This I'm finding helpful, as well as that sort of filing, like mental filing mm -hmm. thing. But I don't know. My, my computer is... I mean, I've been, you know, transferring my data from computer to computer since 2005. I think, like, the finder doesn't actually work properly. Okay. It's like, I think it's time to actually, like not import everything from this computer, get a new computer and just start afresh. Yeah, yeah. Maybe pop everything on a hard drive. Hard drive, man, yeah. Um, but, because uh, there's a lot on there that doesn't need to be done. And I, I don't want to go through that in the same way that I've gone through all my, well, that I'm about to go through all my papers. It's like, yeah, sure. I don't want to sit in front of that damn screen for so long, you yeah. know. It's like minimal, minimal computer usage, minimal device usage. Yeah, yeah. More hitting stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, my life goal is to set it up so that I can f be here probably for the goal is like, I get it sometimes, like probably seven and a half hours a day. Right. Um, and just learning. Um, but you gotta really be in control <laughs> yeah. for that to happen. Yeah. And, yeah, and, um, yeah. There are glimmers of it shining through. Mm. Yeah. What else? <laughs> well, I guess the last thing I want to ask, and what are your thoughts on, um, you know, these music TV shows, Idol and oh, The yeah. Voice? And well, do you have a take on it? or, or uh... Not particularly. I've just been asking a few people, mm. seeing what they think. And I guess I've been got... A few, yeah, a few people get quite emotional about it. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you've got a gig in the band, that's awesome, you know, like Warren Trout, I think, is doing a lot of oh, those yeah. things, and, yeah. and my friend Matt Keegan, and the horn players, Ray Kassar and James Kennedy, I play a lot with them, and they're usually in the horn section for those things. Mm. Um, so for them, it's, I mean, it's great, they've got a gig, you know, and I think they, they really look after you, I think at Channel 7, they pay well, and the, the circumstances are good. Okay. So on that side of the table, yeah, I think it's excellent, the production would be really good, and um, but as a, as a kind of a unit for consumption in the general population, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. My, my PhD supervisor, his name is Charles Fairchild, and when I was doing my work, he published a book called Pirates and Pop Idols, I think, something like that, and I, I haven't read it. I, I read bits of the introduction, and it was right at that time that American Idol and Australian Idol were really hitting it big time. Yep. And I read a really interesting statistic in Charles's work that the recording industry reached, like the sale of CDs, right, in particular, reached a peak, I don't know if you want to guess the year, um, in 1995. Trailed off after that. Mm. 
I'm not sure when Napster and all those things started. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I remember file sharing services being around at that time, and that was a, like a new frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and at that same time, there was the rise of Idol. So the record companies are scrambling to keep the income, keep the bucks rolling in, because the bucks aren't rolling in like they used to. And they've, they've come up with this ingenious way, and I think this is what social media is predicated on also, is that, you know, you've got to ask as the user, who are you working for, All right? So they've set up this multimedia platform where you've got the TV production, which is paid for by the hundreds and thousands of dollars, millions of dollars worth of advertising that the corporations place, you know, um... And then, you know, you vote by sending an SMS. So there's this instant feedback. It's better than ratings ever were, right? Rating surveys, you know, they're a thing of the past. Now it's all about SMS us or, or join our mailing list or, uh, you know, whatever kind of interactive model is in place. So, so they've got a really direct contact with their demographic, you know, the people who are watching these shows. Why are they watching the shows? Because the companies who are advertising on them have spent billions of dollars researching the psychology that's just going to get you right by the short and curlies and, and reel you in, hook, line and sinker. Um, that's why I threw my TV out in 2000, because I understood that that was happening to me. I didn't want that to happen. So these, the advent of these shows, you know, comes about. And, and so and you realize it's more like KFC than... It's more like KFC is to food than, than, than like, you know, some gourmet five-star chef would offer you. Yep. It's, it's just, it's, it's product. It's, yep. it's not, look, there are people who are in that world who are artistic and, and, um, you know, again, like I mentioned Kate Bush before, like she, she's made her career out of the record company model and thank goodness for Kate, thanks goodness that actually Kate Bush got the luck that, that her music came out to the world because to me she is truly an artist. Um, there is a lot of um, garbage and <laughs> speaking of Idol and all this, when I used to, we, I actually used to sit and watch it with my wife just to, to get an education, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. To what, what is this thing um, that is going on that I was trying to ignore and she said, come on, watch it. I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. And all the singers getting on there with these covers and you know there's this vocal technique called a melisma okay. you know where you're like um you hear it in the american national anthem that you know it's all the vibrato and yep. all the uh, little yep. appoggiaturas and all this like you know use melisma to kind of decorate the song yep. it actually doesn't need any decoration just sing it straight ahead and it'll be fine so the same with all these old covers, right, on, on, on the voice and those things. So I came up with this term, you know, they're emaciating this song yeah. with their melisma. So it's melismaciation. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, I don't know if I, like, I, I hear um, as a parallel around that same time, like this sort of gospel chops thing opened up. And I, look, I've got a lot of respect for people who can play the shit out of the drums. But it, it's it's like, Gospel Chops seems to be a license to just overplay yep. and make it about me, me, me. Yep. 
and I, I'm not into that at all. Yep. You know, and so those two things kind of came along in parallel. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's 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 a corporate marketing exercise more than anything else. I wish the general population would just wake up out of the stupor and realize that mm. it's they're not interested in the art or it's it's you know um, um, it's about like trying to leverage whatever kind of media is available on yeah. whatever platform to generate those those millions that they're used to making you know yep um and um and always in those things um i'll never understand it but the 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 payment of the musicians always seems to be comparatively the lowest and the latest in the whole hierarchy of things it's like the whole fucking reason that it exists is for the music at least you think it is yep but it's it's all the people with their fingers in the pies all the stakeholders yeah, that's right who really I'll never understand that I'll never understand it um, yeah it's a complex beast I mean I, I, I've had some dealings with like like being on TV and and signing contracts with record companies to appear with certain artists and mm -hmm. and um, yeah I'm not sure I probably can't really say anything about what actually is happening yeah because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know maybe I can but I don't want to risk it in case someone hears this and goes you know like but it's just interesting to see, like, lift the hood yep. and to see how the machine actually works. Yep. And it is a machine. Of course. Um, I didn't get into music for those reasons. Yep. I just got into it because I love playing the drums. Cool. And, um, you know, but the social media thing is interesting. It's like, uh, like, I guess, you know, Kenny Werner, the pianist, said, you know, it's not music if no one hears it. So, you know, <laughs> a student once reminded me of something I said to him years ago. I don't remember actually saying it to him, but I remember probably why I would have said it. I said to him, man, if you love music, probably about the worst thing you could do would be to go and become a professional musician. You know? <laughs> but I see the opposite too. If you love music, then the best thing you can do is to go and be a professional musician. And, you, and to me, the, the fullest experience of what music has to offer is when you get to perform something original to a receptive crowd and you make their day a little better than it was before they arrived at your gig, you know. Art Blakey said it, you're supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life. Mm. And occasionally people come up and tell me, just people I've never met, they just happen to be at this gig that I'm playing, but they come up to you at the end and they say, I, uh, you know, I think one, one woman said, she, like, it's like she was really depressed, it's like she was really not feeling very good, but just we, we managed to just lift her up out of that and I'm like wow did we do that that's that's awesome that's what you know again like I listen to that Kate Bush song and I cry and there's other tracks too that make me cry but to me if it makes someone feel like that then that's the job that I'm in it for yeah because it's not for me it's it's for like I, I sort of I want to dedicate my learning to the service of the world you know because if you if you can do something just that little bit better, you're taking humanity away from the brink and we're just te teetering perilously close yep. to the edge of the brink. And if I can just help, I mean, I don't know if I ever will, but like, you know, just that little bit back from there, that's why I do what I do, you know, because if I make someone else sound good, I sort of automatically sound good, you know, because... Yes. I'm responding to them sounding good. So that just means getting out of their way, basically. 
Um, and getting out of the music's way, getting out of your own way. Um, Kenny Werner also said, you know, music works. It's just people who fuck it up. <laughs> I think on that note, yeah. Dave, Dave Goodman, thank you so much. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks, awesome chat, man. Thanks thank so you. much. All right. Cheers, man.